If you found Joshua 7, why don't you stand and uh, we'll read together God's word. Joshua chapter 7, I'm going to call your attention to verse 6. I'm going to read from verse 6 to about verse 10 to get the story, but we're going to use the whole chapter, Joshua chapter 7. Now, if you haven't been here in some time or this is your first time, we go through books of the Bible because that is the best way to, really the only way to hear God is from the Bible. So what we do is we study the Bible. We've gone through Joshua since May. We've seen God bring His people out of the wilderness to the Jordan River. God split the Jordan River. He brought His people across the Jordan. They put stones there commemorating what God has done. He got them ready for the promised land. They marched over to Jericho, circled it. The walls came down. God miraculously provided great provision, wonderful victory. One man's sin, Achan, a man named Achan. We're going to hear him. He decided to do what God told him not to do and take the devoted things. And he did that and his one sin, his sin affected all the people of God. Now, we've seen part of that in verses 1 through 5. I want to call your attention now to the leader, Joshua, and how he deals with it. Grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Let's go now. Joshua 7, verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Father, help. God, I pray that from your spirit and by your word to the glory of Jesus, you'll speak. God, keep us close to the Bible. Keep us close to what you say to us. Holy Spirit of God, I pray you would bring conviction, that you would break hardness in hearts. God, I pray that where there is sin, that it would be abandoned and confessed, that you would bring grace of forgiveness. I pray for those that are without Christ, that today their eyes might be open and ears unstopped and their hearts might beat for the glory of God through faith in Jesus. And so help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> You know what this is about, right? This is about trouble. I mean, that's really what chapter 7 is all about, is genuine trouble. Even the name Achan, the man that sinned, that, that messed everybody's life up, even his name, he'll be called the troubler of Israel, even the place. We'll get down there, the Valley of Achor, that, that is translated the Valley of of trouble. You've been there before. 
Sometimes you get there because it's your fault. It's some sin that you've committed and you messed everything up. Sometimes it's like that. It's you. Other times you, you didn't do anything. You're the victim of it. Somebody else sinned and it has affected, it's affected you. But almost always, there's some kind of sin. And it seems to, it seems to happen at the very worst times. You know, Satan likes to get a bang out of his buck too. And for some of you, he's, he's certainly getting that. Much like he is here in chapter 7 of Joshua, let's uh, get the recap so we know where we are in the context. Up to this point, Joshua has been going from one victory to another. Joshua is strengthened, the, the people are encouraged, the Jordan has been crossed, the covenant has been renewed, Jericho has been conquered. Everything's going right. Some of you know this story. You, it's on vacation when you get the bad news. The phone call for tragedy happens at 2 a.m. It's, it's Sunday, the day of worship, when everything goes, goes poorly. It's when you have your worst arguments. It's after a victory, and you've got your hands stretched high in triumph. Let's take the metaphor. That's when your legs are cut out, and you hit the ground like a thud. And for a second, you don't think you'll ever, you don't think you'll ever breathe again. It's, it's like Mike Tyson punched you in your gut. And all you can do is double over and try to gasp for air. That's what's going on here. Israel is defeated. God, it feels like he's nowhere to be found. The people are shell-shocked. One man's sin has affected them. Look, if you'll dig if you'll dig hard enough and if you'll dig long enough and look closely enough underneath all of what's going on, whatever it might be, underneath all of the hurt, underneath it is some kind of sin. It's the fallen world that we live in. It is the suffocating air that we breathe. There is sin in the camp. And it must be dealt with. Look, this is, why, this is why we should be so thankful for the gospel. This is why we should joyfully worship. In fact, let me explain the gospel explicitly on the front end. I, I use a formula I got from a man named Greg Gilbert. He wrote a book called What is the Gospel? It's in our bookstore if you want to stop by and get it. And the framework is like this. You always start with God. God has Creator created all of us in His image. Everyone here has dignity because you have the image of God. You were created in the image of God. That image is disfigured by sin, our own sin and our inherited sinful nature. We inevitably 
will sin. That sin is an offense to God. It creates a problem. There's a chasm. You can't have fellowship with God. That is the issue. That's the issue that the gospel solves. God, who is all justice, and we'll see that at the end of the chapter, is also all love, giving us Jesus Christ, who is fully God, fully man, lived on this earth 33 years, and He lived perfectly, completing and keeping all the law of God. And there at the cross, here's the reason for the cross, Jesus goes to the cross and there is God's justice satisfied. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus in the place of sinners. There's a great exchange. Everyone who will believe in that not only has their sin taken away, you also receive the righteousness that Jesus earned. The perfect righteousness of Christ. So the great exchange brings about your righteousness, and Jesus paying for your sin. Now, the only way to appropriate that, only way it works for you, is if you repent of your sin and believe and trust Jesus. Now, I put this on the front end because this story here reminds us that the trouble with sin is that it is trouble with God. Now, you've been affected by somebody else's sin, and other people have been affected by yours, and that is tragedy in and of itself. But the big issue, the biggest issue that the gospel saves us from is this one, that the trouble with sin is it's, it's trouble with God. I'd like to give you a couple of statements that I think I just want to, maybe you'll see them before I get to them as we pull them out of the text. Let's join this story that's already in progress Let's, let's pick up where, where it is. Israel has suffered a, shock, a shocking defeat because of the hidden sin of one man, Achan. It has affected everybody. Now let's look again at what sin does. Here's the first one. Number one, I want you to see the pain. <clears throat> I want you to see the pain of sin. You'll see it right there in verse 6. Look at Joshua in verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. When you read it, it has the, it has the feel of of being devastated no matter how strong your faith is. Look at what Achan's sin has done to Joshua. Look at what one person's sin does to others around. Now when I read it to you, this is not Joshua repenting. He, has not, he doesn't know of Achan's sin yet. This is something else altogether. Let me show it to you in verse 6. Then Joshua, he tore his clothes... He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Now keep all of that together. Hold verse 6 together. Every one of those actions is an action of grief. It's, it's, it's what you do at a funeral. It's lamenting. It is, it is mourning. This is what you do when you, when you walk through some sort of tragedy. And by the way, um, let's put a pause there. When you read that, it is good and right to pour out your griefs and pain to the Lord. It is good to sob your heart and your hurt to God. Why? Because a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And I'll push on that a little further. You'll notice that in verse 6, he's with the elders of Israel. This is the first time we hear of those men. Here is this leadership sort of accountability, if you want to use a modern term. Here is the congregation. Here is why you are in a church. 
You, you have other Christians with you for a reason to to walk with you, to comfort you when you're hurt, to confront you when you sin. This is how the congregation works, that we care for one another. Now, listen to the confusion in Joshua's voice. This is what Achan's sin has done to Joshua. Joshua didn't commit the sin. Achan did. And if it can happen to this faithful leader, Joshua, whose name, whose very name means Yahweh saves who is the foreshadowing of Jesus himself, if this could happen to him, it could sure happen to you. You see him there in verse 6, Alas, O Lord God, alas. That is this cry, this hurt, O Lord God, O Sovereign Lord, O Yahweh, all-powerful, is what he's saying. You know, what, you know what's going on here in verse 6? you felt this before, I'm sure. Here is the familiar clashing of believing in the full sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things, that He is good, that He can do anything and does all things for the good of those that love Him. It's, it's, it's believing, Romans 8, 28, but then, then being completely confused as to why God would let this happen. It's, be, it's bewildering. That's what's going on with Joshua. He's saying, I believe you're powerful. You control all things. What's happened? I mean, in the text, you can see it. Just keep pressing into verse 7. In the text, Joshua is questioning everything. When you read verse 7, he even sounds like, remember the grumbling in the desert that the people did uh, when they were uh, wandering for 40 years and they're grumbling about this manna. He sounds like them right there in verse 7. Notice what the text says in verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? I wish we were back. Somebody else's sin can hit you so hard. This is not Achan, this is Joshua. Somebody else's sin can hit you so hard that it can get you paralyzed. And you end up being paralyzed and staying in the world of why. Look, if you stay in the world of why did this happen, why did this go on, if you stay there, you, you start developing this sort of spiritual amnesia. You, you, you start forgetting this is not Achan. This is Joshua. He didn't do the sinning. Achan did. So Achan's sin has affected Joshua. You, you've, you've, some of you have been there. And if you live there asking why, why did this happen? You, you develop this uh, spiritual amnesia. You forget the promises of God. You forget the blessings of God. You forget how to rejoice in the goodness of God. You forget the grace of God. You, you end up... You end up sitting there and rotting in your own grief. That's verse 7. Verse 7 is the bottom. He, I mean, he's right there on the bottom, pouring it out to the Lord. And then we get to verse 8. <clears throat> verse 8, you find him in this sort of reality check. It, verse 8, he just says, what, what can I say? There's nothing I can say. You see it in verse 8? Oh, Lord, what can I say? When your people have turned their backs. Verse 8 is this real sense of reality. 
And now, now you get to verse 9, keep following, and the focus starts to return. He's, he's thinking through. This is, you gotta, you gotta press on to hear. Verse 9. The Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they'll hear of it. They will surround us. They will cut off our name from the earth. And here comes the kingdom of God. What will you do for your great name? What does this mean for the name of God, for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God? You see the prayer? This is why you've got to stay there. The prayer starts with... Um, the prayer starts... With anguish and complaint. Alas, O oh Lord God. Why? Why is this happening? And then the prayer gets into realization. I'm not in control. What, what can I say? This is God's business. What can I say? And then once you get through this realization, it finally takes an upturn. Verse 9. To God. I want to live my life to the glory of God. What will happen to the name of God? That's, brothers and sisters, that's where we go. We go to God. We go to the gospel of God found in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners. God raising him from the dead and us putting our faith there. You see, the trouble with sin is, the, is that it's trouble with God and there's pain. You've been the victim of somebody, somebody else did it and you feel the brunt, it's pain, the pain of sin. But let's go further into the story and see what else happens. Uh, I want you to see the remedy for sin. So you can see it in blocks in your Bible. It's probably sectioned off by the editors. You have from verse 6 and 9, that's Joshua speaking. And then in verse 10, God speaks. From verse 10 to verse 15, God gives some clear instructions. Some very clear instructions to Joshua that I think actually can be extremely helpful. Join me there in verse 10 and listen to the admonition in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> Sometimes you just, need to be, you just need to hear that. Get up. Why, why are you on your face? Now, that, that phrase, don't, um, we're prone to say to people, get over it. That's not the same. That's not helpful. Don't tell people to get over it. All that does is hurt. So they're not going, that's not going to get, nobody ever got over it by you saying, get over it. This is not the same thing. This is, a, this is a rattling here. This is the kindness of God saying, you can't stay there. Why are you down there? Because jo Joshua still doesn't know why it's going so terribly. So the Lord says, why, why have you fallen on your face? This problem, this problem is never solved with inaction. This problem cannot be solved with self-pity. This, this problem cannot be solved with passivity. This problem cannot be solved with nostalgia, looking back at, at how things used to be. God, God tells Joshua in verse 11, here's what's going on. So the first thing I would just write down is you, you need to get up. So that's just a practical, we need to get up and start moving through it. Here's the second thing is uh, we, we need to deal with sin and actually call it sin. We need to deal with it and actually call it sin. We, we live in a world where the concept of sin has gone strangely out of fashion, even among uh, Bible-believing churches. And we, we live in a world that has gotten much more comfortable with uh, therapeutic language about sin. 
And if we're not careful, even in those that believe the Bible, you come into church and it can feel a little bit like you're in a therapy session. But the thing is, I'm not qualified as a therapist. I'm not saying that some of you couldn't benefit from some therapy. But that is not what the gospel does. I mean, look, it, take the words that God, take the words that God gives to Joshua. Go with me to the verse 11 and watch, watch the words. You can even circle them in your Bible if you'd like. See what it says? Israel, just count them. I mean, I got A, B, C, D, E, F in my notes here. Israel has sinned. That's one. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. That's two. They have taken some of the devoted things. That's three. And they, they have stolen. That's four. They've lied and they've put them among their own belongings. I mean, just see how God just stacks up. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. It's sin. Honestly, that when you start naming sin for what it is, it's one of the most freeing. It's one of the most honest. It's one of the most cleansing. Isn't that what confession When we agree with God, this was sin. When we name something the same thing God has named it. When, when we actually call it lying or adultery or idolatry or lust or breaking the marriage covenant or gossip or gluttony. When we call it that, it takes away some of the attractiveness and reminds us of God's holiness and, and our need for grace. I just want you to, just to think through the, the unequivocal, unpadded confession of sin is what we are called here. Now, now Joshua is now starting to figure out something. Okay, it's not, it's not just that God has abandoned us. There's something, there's sin here. Now, again, it's, it's Achan's sin. But I want to press through it. We don't just call sin, sin. I just want to give you another thought here in verse 12. We need to think through the consequences. This is one person, Achan, the consequences of his sin on other people. Go with me down to verse 12. Look at the consequences there. Think through them. Verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel, here's why, this is what sin does. Therefore, the people of Israel, they cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Think just... You can probably list them yourself, but let me just kind of be a tour guide and walk through. Think of the consequences. They, they can't stand before their enemies. There's no more victory. This is what sin has done. Made it so they can't win anymore. Not only that, there's complete humiliation. You see in verse 12 that turning their necks, that is the posture of bowing down before. That is absolute humiliation. Not only that, keep looking at verse 12. God says that Israel now has become devoted to destruction. That is to say they now are just like the people and the things in Jericho that we wiped out. Here, here's where you end up. If you, if you live in sin, claiming Jesus, and there's no lordship, 
You, you end up as this practical unbeliever. Practically, you're an unbeliever. I mean, here is the breakdown of cultural Christianity. We actually are seeing that in real time in, in our world right now. You're seeing uh, lots of deconstructing of faith because something was missing. P people that maybe were, were baptized when they were young, when they claimed, maybe claimed Christ as Savior, but there never was evidence of Christ as Lord. And it is an absolute untenable position. It, it cannot. You cannot live like that, especially in the culture that we live in. While there is unconfessed sin, while there is ignored sin, while there is tolerated sin, while, while sin is dressed up in therapeutic language like the pursuit of, 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 of happiness or fulfillment, I want, to, I want to take a different path. When that happens, not only does the sinner get stuck, but it affects the people around you. And so with that, now God has shown what the problem is to Joshua. He then provides the remedy. You'll see it in verses 12 and following. Look with me at the very end of verse 12. Just, just bring your eyes down the page to verse 12. And here's what God says at the end of verse 12. I will be with you no more unless, there's always hope, unless you destroy the devoted things. Unless you take steps. Unless you seek change. And then in verse 13 now, you, the narrative picks up. Here's what the author is doing. He's gotten us there, gotten us there. And now the pace picks up, intensifies. Look at the call. There it is again in verse 13. Get up. Look at the two words in verse 13. Consecrate. Consecrate. There's this, uh, those two words are the words for holiness. Two times there's a call for holiness. I, I want to pause here and speak to two groups of people in this congregation today. The first group uh, are among those you, you know that you're not a Christian. Maybe you know it. Uh, we had baptism this morning. That's the, it is the symbol, the act of obedience. It, baptism doesn't save you. It is an indication of what has gone on. You haven't been baptized because you haven't needed baptism because you're not converted. I'd, I'd like to talk to you just for a moment. No, no amount of trying, no amount of being good will get you there. Christianity is a religion of grace. That, that means that the reason we're saved is that it comes from God's grace, His, His mercy, that is extended through our faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That, that's Christianity. That's how we are actually saved, by grace through faith in Jesus. It's, it's the great exchange that I talked about on the front end of the sermon. Jesus takes our sin, we receive His righteousness. And, and at the end of the sermon today, we're going to sing, and, and when we do, I, I'm just going to invite you to respond to what you've heard. You need to talk to one of our pastors. You need somebody to pray with you as to how you can actually become a Christian. There's another group of people here in this congregation this morning. You are, or, or at, least, at least you always thought you were a Christian. 
But if you were to stand up on a little bit of a rise and be able to look out over the history of your life, what you would see there, there is no long-term evidence that you ever actually lived your life as a Christian. Whatever Christianity that you claimed has, has, has at the very least been dormant, if that is even possible. And, and I want you to hear verse 13, the language of God that says, you, you need to get up. That, that right there is a call for repentance, a, a call for change. See, the grace that saves you is the grace that now forgives you and restores you. Whether that means you taking seriously what it means to follow Jesus or you giving your life to Christ for the very first time. Which, which brings me to my next point. I'll call this number three, and that is the fight. I, I want to close with this. It's the fight against sin. So verses 6 through 9, Joshua speaks. Verses 10 through 15, God gives instructions. And we'll see that there. You see the clear instructions on how to deal with sin in the camp of Israel. It is this narrowing process. You can read it for yourself. Verses 11 and 12 and 13 down to 15. To narrow down to one person to find out who did this. All the while, Achan knows he did it. And he's going to be called out. This is a reminder to be sure that your sins will find you out. This narrowing process uh, starts in verse 16. And finally, the man named Achan is standing alone in verse 19. I want you to join me there in verse 19. Let's just read a little bit of it. Verse 19. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to Him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. By the way, when Achan speaks here, this is not repentance. He had to be forced into this. They're two different things. And Achan answered Joshua, and this is what he said. Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Now slow down in verse 21 and look at the sequence. Look at the anatomy. Look at the evolution of sin. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Do you see? This is what he said. I saw it. I coveted. I took. I hid. This is the same sequence since Adam and Eve in the garden this is the fall. This is, this, is our, this is our life. This is a cautionary tale to us. This is, um, this is what James, James said in chapter 1 of James, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Listen, brothers and sisters, there is, a, there is a certain savagery that we must take against our sin. Because if we don't deal with it, I mean, here, Achan, one man's sin affected the entire congregation. If we don't deal with it, everyone around us gets hurt. We can't coddle sin. We can't explain sin. We can't 
massage sin. We can't ignore sin. Look, when Jesus talked about battling sin, you know what he said? If, you're, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Look, if your hand causes you to sin, here's the savage nature. Cut it off. When, when Paul talked about sin, he, he put it in the category of absolute total warfare. I mean, even here. Join me here at the end now. Look at the savagery in verse 24. Joshua and all of Israel with him, he took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them up to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today and all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned them with stones. It's a savage. Here's the justice of God. We read that. It's here to teach us to run to the mercy of God found at the cross of Jesus. But bring your finger down now to verse 26. There's something else. The author is sure to tell us in verse 26. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains there to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. You can stand in that region, look closely enough over in, in the landscape, you can see that the author says you can still see that heap of stones. That heap of stones would would remind us of the judgment of God. But if you were backtracked just a little bit to, to see where Israel came from, there by the Jordan River, you'd find another stack of stones. Twelve stones stacked by the river near Gilgal that reminds of the mercy of God. And each of, each of us here, we live in this... This legacy, our, our life is like Achan, stones of judgment. Our life is like Israel, stones of mercy, stones of grace. Today is a really good day to start living your life in a legacy of grace. Now this morning we're going to sing and when we do, I'm just going to just going to ask you to come and pray. Just going to ask you to come and pray for yourself and for your family. Maybe you need to come and just, um, you can kneel here on this hard floor just to the Lord. Confess sin. Let's not hide that anymore. Maybe you want to pray with your spouse or for a child or with a child. Pray and ask God to give you a legacy of grace. After I pray, Gerald will lead us in singing. That's when you come. Father, thank you for the good grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for this cautionary tale that shows us your judgment. And the cost of sin, our own sin, and how it affects us and how it affects others. 
God, I pray that you would call this church and call me and the men and women here into lives of holiness and humility and pursuing the grace you've given us. Father, give us a deep joy that comes from knowing Christ that sustains us through all that we face. We pray that above all things that you are honored in all that we say and do, that Christ is lifted high. I pray that you protect your people. Father, I pray that you, you heal hearts and re return to us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.